afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Langhans from the Center for Continuing Education, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for our August session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Patient Surveillance on General Care Units. I would also like to welcome anyone that's viewing this session online. Just a few housekeeping details. Um, I'm very excited to tell you about a new way that the Center for Continuing Education is recording attendance. After the program, you'll receive an email from the Center for Continuing Education with a link to an online evaluation. Upon completing the evaluation, your one contact hour will be automatically posted to your online transcript. This ties completing the evaluation to receiving credit. Even if you do not need the contact hour, the Center for Continuing Education values your feedback and hopes that you'll take a moment to complete the evaluation. Your feedback is very important to us. Please be sure to sign in, and you must attend at least 80% of the program to receive credit. Um, for those viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, you may email them to me, and I will give them to the presenter at the end of the presentation. And also for those viewing online, please email me within one hour of the completion of the presentation stating that you participated in the activity, include your name, degree, and zip code. My email address is judith.m is in May, Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. There are instructions on how to access your online transcript by the sign-in sheet, or you can contact me. Our speaker today is Dr. Andreas Tanzer. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Dr. Tanzer does receive grant support from non-commercial interest organizations. Dr. Tanzer is Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. He and his colleagues from the Dartmouth Group for Patient Surveillance have garnered national and international attention for their groundbreaking work to improve patient monitoring on general care units. In January, Dr. Tanzer was invited to be a featured speaker on the um, failure to Rescue topic at the prestigious Patient Safety Summit, which included notables such as former President Bill Clinton, former President Bill Clinton, and many other most prominent leaders in healthcare. I would like to welcome Dr. Tanzer. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? The mic is working. Okay. More nervous today than I was at that Clinton summit. It's kind of funny that I'm talking to you about this today, because obviously this is not my work. This is primarily the work that you as nurses on the floors have done. And even though it's true that we've been recognized for this work, and I've talked to nurses at many different institutions about what you have done here, I've never talked to you. I've talked to nurses on 3 West and 4 West and 2 West but never really talked to anybody from the medical source. So I'm going to talk today about the work that we have done with a pulse oximetry network that started in December 2007 on 3 West, expanded to the other surgical units and to the medical units. And then in the last part of the talk, talk about uh, sepsis, because right now that's like Miriam's and my hobby. Um, 
unfortunately, I'm not really receiving any notable money that would help me to get my five kids through college. But I have had a grant from the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation that was for um, checking out basically the respiratory rate monitors that we did on two, three, and four West for a while. Uh, I'm getting a very small amount of support from this big HHC grant that Jim Weinstein got for us. And I have some institutional uh, support on looking at, you know, patient deterioration on the floor, what happens, and how we can prevent it. And that's largely what, what I'm going to talk about today. Here are the objectives. They have to be listed because you're getting CME credit. Um, there they are. So last-minute saves um, shouldn't depend on individual efforts by a few people who do great things, right? It's not a sustainable way of doing it. Just like this doesn't really work well. <laughs> there should be something here and over there that prevents this from happening. Um, and so, you know, house MD is about the worst thing that has ever hit medicine. Right? That's not how we like to practice things. This slide, anybody from 4 West here? Nobody. All right. This is 4 West, before and after starting with the pulse oximetry network. And what you see on this slide are rescue events. And rescue events are the HER team is being alerted. Somebody has a code, or somebody has a code blue. All right, and institution-wide, we track those numbers on per 1,000 patient days per unit. And here you see 12 months of this before, and you see that the average number of rescues just under five for 1,000 patient days on 4 West, with a lot of fluctuation up and down, uh, basically was cut in half with much less fluctuation and a much more stable system in the 12 months after. Okay? And, and all that was done here was letting you know when one of your patients has an oxygen saturation that dips below 80%. The primary intervention that was done, or if the heart rate goes above 140 or below 50. And so how we got from here to there that's what I'm going to talk about in the, in the first part of this, uh, of this talk. So it's very abstract to actually look at those numbers and charts. But this is actually what it looks like for one single individual patient. This is time in seconds. So roughly from here to there, it's 2,000 seconds, which is just a little bit under an hour, right? And in red, you see oxygen saturation. And in blue, you see heart rate. And after a few hours of a little bit up and down, there's a clear trend for the oxygen saturation to dip down here below 80 and then continues to go down. And you see simultaneously everything that dips down, the heart rate goes up. And here it continues to go up, 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 up until you were called to the room and you made an intervention. And this was a save. And the interesting thing about this particular patient is that this is a patient 
that none of our great physicians or none of our great nurses would have said this is somebody who should be monitored. Right? This is a healthy Dartmouth student, long distance runner, no medical problems after an appendectomy. Okay? No risk factors for anything whatsoever. But we had people like that die while they were under our care on our floors. If I want you to, one thing to take away from this presentation today, it's really this slide here. Okay. If you look at patients who have had really bad adverse events leading to death ultimately, and you look back at the vital signs that are available, and this has been done hundreds of times in the literature, there's a period that is somewhere between six and eight hours where the vital signs get more and more unstable until something bad happens at the end. Okay? We just many times don't know about it, or we can't keep track of it. So usually we have a co-team, and, and they intervene pretty late. That's when arrest happens. So in the mid-1980s, primarily in Australia, New Zealand, and then the United Kingdom, and then subsequently here uh, in the US and at, at, um, at DH, rapid response teams were um, introduced to solve this problem. And the idea was that you, as, as nurses on the floor, detect that there's something wrong with a patient. And that might be a vital sign, or this might be just a general concern regarding a patient or this may be a change in mental status, right? And rather than going to a physician resident and then to a consultant who consults another service up and down the cascade and nothing ever happens, the idea of rapid response team was that you directly activate the rapid response team, right? Cutting through that, all that hierarchy and just going laterally to one of your peers to get the system to get these, this group in to intervene here before all this happens. So that was the idea behind rapid response teams. And because we are where we are, we didn't call it a rapid response team, but it's the Hitchcock Emergency and Rescue Team, or whatever that thing is called, okay? It's just like, whatever. Anyway, so that was introduced right here. The problem is that it is hard to know when to call because it's hard to keep track of all those patients you're watching simultaneously and actually find out in what direction they are trending, or even getting their vital signs in a time frame that's a little bit better than every four hours. Right? So the idea was, could we somehow identify a decline earlier on through just watching everybody all the time, notify you to make an intervention even earlier that doesn't even allow it to go out here, or if needed, to activate the response team early on. So that was the principal idea behind surveying patients, watching everybody all the time. And as you can immediately imagine, the problem with that is how do you balance finding them, alerting you, and driving you entirely nuts with alarms that go off all the time, right? So it's the balancing 
of alarm fatigue and actually benefiting any outcome. And we had played with that before. There was a system installed on the pediatric floor uh, that monitored all patients all the time, and it alarmed all the time, drove everybody nuts. Basically, it was sh you know, shut, shut off. If you walk through our ICU, chances are more likely that you hear an alarm that you do not hear an alarm, right? So there's alarm noise more than 50% of the time. And one of the ICU attendings who will remain unnamed at times just walks through the unit and shuts all alarms off. And at times it takes people a, a huge amount of time to even notice that, that he had uh, or she had done that, okay? You didn't hear this one. Anyway, so it's just total alarm fatigue. All alarms are, are totally ignored, right? Overburdened and, and you ignored. And there's actually very cool literature from, from other industries that look at how often can something alarm and be real that you actually pay any attention to it. And alarms need to be right in a, more than 90%. Otherwise, people start to ignore them. If they are wrong more than 50%, you may as well shut the whole thing off. It doesn't work. Okay. So when, when we started to introduce the system, what we actually did is we went to Nancy Karen, okay, who's really the hero of all this on 3West, and said, Nancy, you know, what do you think, how many alarms per day can you actually cope with? They're like, um, you know, maybe two per patient per shift, but more than that, it's really not going to work. So we actually ran the system in the background and simulated how many alarms there would be before it was even turned off, okay? Realizing that that means that the alarm settings are maybe a little bit wide and maybe being worried about that we wouldn't be catching everybody. But if you look back on where we are, were in 2007, we were losing patients who were under our care. So the argument was, well, even if we can't save everybody with something like that, at least we're going to do better than we were before. Okay. And having said that, since December 2007, uh, 3 West hasn't had a death or brain damage due to hypoxia, which is a long, long time. So the group who implemented all that were the nurses on 3 West and, and Nancy Karen, who really should be in the middle of all this, and a, an engineering student, Sue McGrath, who you know from the Value Institute, who now works on uh, monitoring and alarm, and um, the mandates that will come to all of us uh, from JACO regarding alarm management, and uh, George Black. The system is a pulse auxiliary network that you're all familiar with. Um, it can be designed many different ways, and I think the team worked very hard to get this right in the beginning, and I think they did. So there are bedside pulse oximeters, and the patient is attached with a cable at this point to this monitor. The monitor sends a wireless signal to your workstation where you can see an overview or individual patients, their heart rate and oxygen saturation. Then the system can be designed so that if certain alarm thresholds are crossed, the system sends a page out to somebody who carries this page. It can be designed many different ways. The way we set it up here at DH is that 
the page only goes out to the nurse who's, care, uh, who's caring for that patient, right? rather than doing a community alarm, which other people have played with. And we, we, we thought that wouldn't work. One of the key elements to control the alarms, apart from uh, choosing the threshold so that they don't go off all the time, but they do go off when there's something really wrong, is to delay the alarm. And there are two different delays. There's a, there's a delay at the bad side on this thing. And so for oxygen saturation, the setting is, um, as you know, at 80%. And only if the sats are lower than 80 for 15 seconds does this thing go off at the bad side. And after another 15 seconds or a total of 30 seconds, you get the page. And this is to make sure that this is actually a real it's not an artifact, it's not a patient that's turning the finger where the probe is on or any of these things. And one of the beautiful, fantastic, un, in, not attended consequences of this was that it's a perfect alignment of the interest of the patient and the nurse. Because Nancy, I'm going to mention her a bunch of times, right? and I'm sure the other units do that as well. When, when the, the nurses on 3 West uh, admit a patient and they hook them up to that system, they explain to them that if you hear that alarm go off in your room, take three really deep breaths in and out, okay? Which does two th things. It gets rid of the atelectasis, which is invariably the reason that the sets go down. And the alarm goes away for the patient. And they take these three breaths before the other 15 seconds go by and the nurse gets the page, right? So it decreases alarm burden for the nurse who's taking care of that patient. It's great. And the patient's sad go up, which is great. Let me just go back to um, one step to this previous slide. Because apart from these six to eight hours, time that we are able to intervene and prevent bad things to happen. The other key uh, thought about monitoring everybody all the time is that we as healthcare people, uh, physicians and nurses, have miserably failed to actually correctly identify those patients who are going to have an adverse event. Okay? So the idea that what we used to do 10 years ago is to have that you know, BMI 45 obstructive sleep apnea re knee replacement patient, or you know, the COPD with an exacerbation comes in, monitor only those people and have a pulse oximeter in their room. It just totally fails. If you look at our patients, either here or other institutions, who have rescue events, and then you ask, you know, experts afterwards, would you have monitored this patient with any specific monitoring? They can agree on about 50% of those patients. It's a total coin toss, right? We, we just have to be humble about this and realize that we cannot predict on who is going to have an adverse event or not. And, and why is that the case? Well, it is because it's not the patient's comorbidities that cause a lot of problems. It's us as a healthcare institution who cause a lot of problems, right? Wrong drug, wrong dose, wrong time, wrong interval, wrong any of those things. 
Okay? That's why patients don't do well. And then you throw all this you know, individual variability into the mix, and it becomes a total you know, roll of the dice. So you look at something like codeine, right? 10% of the population can't metabolize codeine. They get no analgesia from it whatsoever. It just doesn't work. So codeine works because 10% of it is broken down to morphine. Morphine gives the pain relief. 10% of the population, it doesn't work. They get nothing from it at all. So if a patient comes to you and says, well, codeine, I've had that a number of times. It doesn't do anything for me. Chances are they are right. And then there's a group of hypermetabolizers, right? They just break this down to morphine like there's no tomorrow and get a huge amount of the dose. And it's without genetic testing. It's unpredictable. So there's the slow and the fast metabolizers. And that appears to be true for a lot of different drugs. There are places like Vanderbilt who now routinely at the bedside do genetic testing for slow and fast metabolizers for Plavix. And right away, from before the first dose, determine if the interval for Plavix should be 12 or 24 hours. Right? And, and we're just learning this now, but it does explain in retrospect why we are so bad at this. It's not because we are bad, because it's really difficult to get this right. So why are we monitoring everybody all the time? Because monitoring everybody all the time gives us enough time to intervene. And not everybody is the same. Things are different. And things are truly, totally unpredictable. Right? And we don't know which one of these patients is going to be this whole here. Right? It's not always the high BMI, many comorbidity things. It may be that Dartmouth long distance runner that is totally healthy. We just don't know, right? And we have prevented so many adverse e events um, with this system that if we look back at patients who still have adverse events, it is many times because we didn't put them on the system. Right? We have three cases of RCAs in the last 24 months with adverse events to patients where the conclusion of the RCA was this would have been prevented if they would have been hooked up to the system. Okay. Nancy, I'll mention her one more time, tells me that she has a hard time in her last month, I think February it was, uh, with some of the younger nurses who kind of never have seen it, what it was like before we had the system. And so their motivation to get the patient on is, is just not there, you know, as it was for Mike and, or, or, or Nancy. So it's the, you know, sustaining this effort and continuing with this effort that is really, really important. And nurses are smart, and they make the same judgment calls that physicians do. Oh, this young kid is going to be fine, right? It's, it's exactly the same thing. You know, why would it be any different? But I think they, you know, everybody has to come to that, to that um, conclusion that we just cannot predict on who is going to have an adverse event. And yet all it takes is, you know, to hook them up to this. And all it takes, I know how much work that is. 
and what a nuisance that is if somebody goes up, goes to the bathroom, goes back, and back and forth. And we are looking into a way to make this easier by making this untethered. Okay. Um, but this is where we are, and, and those two reasons are the reasons why we want to monitor. We know we get the signal early enough to make a difference for our patients, and we do not know on who is going to have a problem. The, the way the system is set up and, and the way on how we can do these RCAs and actually look on who is on the system and who not and when it was on and when it was not is that when, we, when the signal comes and goes to your workstation here, the workstation actually only stores it for 48 hours, and then the data is being overwritten. Before that happens, we actually take all that data and dump it in a database. So if we have an adverse event and people decide they want to look at it two weeks later, we can pull that data out, and it's second-to-second -second data. That's the resolution of the data. We know every single second what happens. This is obviously extremely valuable. Nobody else has this in the world. And we have this for you know 20,000 patient days or so now. So we are very interested in, in, in going back and identifying patients who had a, you know, a PEA, who became septic down the road. If we can find early signs that would allow us to identify them earlier. I think this is a really um, important point, that whatever we do with technology, it's there to help you. Right? We are extremely reluctant to do anything in terms of monitoring patients that you as nurses on the floor don't have a benefit from. If it adds to your work and you're already totally task-saturated with all this electronic stuff and everything else, documentation that's going on that we are very, very sensitive to that. And so one example for that is, you know, people claim that just continuously monitoring respiratory rate uh, all the time would be the, like the holy grail to finding all patients who have um, respiratory depression and, and very low SATs. And we went on to 2, 3, and 4 West and monitored for two months most patients who came through. Again, the same way, we first just tracked numbers, didn't turn alarms on, then saw how many alarms would go off when we use it. We then turned them on and found it didn't really make a difference. It didn't provide any measurable benefit over what we already had. So we decided that we're not going to do it. Okay. But at times, we need to look into those things to see if we can rescue and help more patients um, than we're doing right now. But we're extremely sensitive to the fact that we're not, just not going to throw something at you that may increase your workload but not benefit anybody. So 3West was the first unit that got the pulse oximetry network. And the way we wanted to measure on what it actually does were two different ways, basically just outcomes that the institution was tracking anyway for quality insurance. And the two outcomes we picked were 
rescue events. And again, that's activation of hurt, code blue, and just plain out codes measured as an events per 1,000 patient days per month. That's a routine measure we already had anyway. And the other measure was ICU transfers, right? So this is a, it's called a box plot. And this box plot has all data points in it. And this is like the median, like the middle. And this is 25 to 75%. And this is 5 to 95% of all data points. And these are outliers. And it's a very nice way of showing you all the data um, giving you an impression on how dispersed it is uh, rather than just giving you like the middle value. And we tracked data for about a year before the system and a year after. And this is 3West. And what you see is that the rescue events, the average decreased by 66% from before to after with a very much tighter box, much less fluctuation from one month to month. Now, the problem with looking at before and after is always that all kinds of other things in the institution change at the same time. Right? Nothing ever stands still. So in order to see if this was just you know, good luck or if the institution just changed something for all units, we actually used 4West um, and 2West as control units. So control unit 1, control unit 2. Okay. And neither of those units had any significant change. Okay, so 66% reduction in rescue events. And we did the same for ICU transfers. And the unanticipated ICU transfers on 3West uh, decreased by 50%. What did that actually mean for 3West? Well, this meant a reduction of 150 ICU days for patients just coming from 3West in a one-year time span. Apart from the much improved patient outcomes, you, you can imagine that, that the cost savings that went along with that, or, or actually for Miriam, it really meant that there were other people coming from the outside occupying those beds, right? But from the institutional standpoint, that's a good thing. And for the community, that means, well, those patients who came in through 3West were doing better and at the same time, we were able to take patients in from the community who needed our ICU beds rather than sending them somewhere or keeping them at their community hospitals. And the people who made that happen were the nurses, right? And we just put the technology there and talked with them about on how it would work. And, and they just took it from there. And we surveyed the nurses in 3West on how much they like the system and if we should take it back down and if one of their loved ones would come to the hospital, should we have a system like that? Would they favor that? And there was overwhelming support for it. Okay. We had statements like, well, if I'm taking care of Mr. Smith in you know, 320, it makes me do my task a little bit better because I know that, you know, Mrs. Smith in 322 is not what I'm doing. Um, the way the alarms are shut off is that you attend to the bedside and shut it off. And, and if that doesn't happen in a certain time frame, that page escalates to either your unit leader or buddy nurse. 
So there's always some attendance to that patient. And this reduction may not sound all that great to you, or a reduction of ICU transfers of 50% may not sound all that great for you. But I would challenge you to tell me of any other intervention that this hospital has ever done that comes even remotely close to that. And this was published and got a lot of attention. More so probably in the outside world than here, to be quite honest. Right? I mean, there are, we had delegations from Singapore coming here, walking across our units and look at that. Um, maybe my last comment about Nancy Karen. I mean, I got a phone call from Vanderbilt from their chief quality officer and their chief nursing officer. And after some brief polite exchange just to keep you know, things up with me, they said, can we talk to Nancy? <laughs> so I, I had to kind of use code because this actually ended up in a paper. But after the success on uh, 3West, the system was then installed on um, 2West and 4West with very similar results. We are also on the medical units, and we have tracked results there as well. And on, the, um, on some of the units, we have seen a reduction in events, on others not. Um, but we also have the lowest utilization of using the pulse oximetry network on, on the medical floors. And so it is very hard to, to know what it has meant on those floors if we have a hard time even getting 50% of patients on those units on, onto the system. And so I think the institution realizes that it's not good enough to get these systems up and going, but it needs to go along with continuous um, support to sustain these efforts. And partially, this is totally our fault, right? There's a lot of effort that have gone has gone into 3West to make this going, and then some effort on, on the other surgical units. But there really has been a lack of effort for the medical floors. And going back there and, and explain to them, you know, this is one of your patients that was saved. And this is one of your patients that, that wasn't saved because, you know, we didn't have the patient on the system. Um, and I think now with Sue uh, heading this effort on monitoring in the ho hospital in general, I think we will um, we'll work on that better. And I, I hope that um, we can hire Nancy to help us with that. <laughs> okay. So lots of attention for this. And um, this is now on the government website about innovations. This was in the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation newsletter. This was presented at the National Patient Safety Foundation meeting. Um, and, and another pledge to you, really, we, we have always tried to get nurses who are interested in research involved in this. And we've really had the most success with, with Bridget and her team on pediatrics because we are on pediatrics. And Bridget has generated posters uh, that she presented in, at NPSF okay, that got a lot of attention. She's writing a paper now. There's a lot of opportunity from your side to participate and, and work on the research related to this as if it's related to workflow, patient outcomes, how do you do things, how do you implement things. I mean, we are known for this stuff, right? And so if you hand something in as somebody from here, 
your chance that you're going to be invited to present this are as high as anything could be. All right. Miriam's hobby. So there are some events where when we get to the patient, we can avoid bad consequences relatively easily. Now it's the patient who obstructs the airway, the sets go down, you go there, you adjust the pillow, you do something. The funny thing is that all these results are due to what you have done, yet we really don't know what you have done. You know what I mean? When you get the alarm, you go to your patient, and because our results are so superb and our patients do so much better, we know you're doing the right thing, but we've never written down on what is it that you actually do. So research idea right there. You know, just for a month or for a week or for two weeks, track on what is actually the intervention that you guys do. When the alarm goes off, you know, wake the patient up, turn the head to the side, adjust the pillow. We have no clue what it is that you do. But I know it's working, right? They're doing a lot better. Yet there are some, some diseases where getting to the patient in time makes us alter the progression of the disease dramatically without necessarily being able to just go back to normal, right? Somebody who obstructs, you turn the head, you get the tongue out of the way, you do something. Done, right? And there's some diseases where if we would only know about it and would intervene, we can dramatically alter outcome. We can't stop it, we can't get it back to zero, but it makes a huge difference in outcomes. So if you look at failure to rescue events in hospitals, 68% are due to respiratory depression, decubitus ulcers, and sepsis. I think we're doing a lot better with decubitus ulcers now than we used to. I think the respiratory depression um, we have under control. We're doing better than any other institution in the country to prevent respiratory depression. Reason for codes at our institution are about 5% of them are related to respiratory depression. Around the country, it's between 40 and 60%. Sepsis is something that we struggle with a little bit. Everybody does, but we have struggled a little bit more than others. Right? Sepsis has a very high mortality. Mortality of severe sepsis is 25%. Septic shock is 40%. Every year in the U.S., more patients die of sepsis than of MIs or of strokes. It's the highest cost medical diagnosis that exists. Costs of estimated $18 billion in 2008. And only 5 to 20% of patients receive recommended care. Is that surprising? Not really. No matter what you look at, you know, physicians provide recommended care in about 20% of cases. You're diabetic, you're going to your PCP, 20% recommended care. You have a migraine headache and see a neurologist, about 20% of patients actually receive the care that's recommended by their own society. Pretty consistent. Um, the problem with sepsis is, A, we weren't really here, and B, you die if you don't get the right intervention. Right? 
And what is the right intervention, and how do we find out who has sepsis? And that's where the problem is. If you look at the three high mortality settings that, that we see for patients who come to us for MIs and for stroke and for sepsis, no question sepsis is the hardest one to diagnose. Right? They don't have chest pain and left arm pain, and you send a couple of enzymes off, and you know what it is. You, know? you don't have a limb arm or a tongue hanging out of stroke. It's not that easy. They may be febrile. They may be confused. They just may feel ill, just signs of general malaise. They are harder to diagnose for us. But just like an MI, there is an intervention that's known to work, and it's very time sensitive. Delaying a broad spectrum antibiotic at the onset of sepsis by only one hour increases mortality by 8%. That's huge. And if we look at our inpatient population where we almost have the hardest time with identifying them, and this is where the surveillance comes in again on general care units. So that is something that we all need to work on, be aware of, is their mortality is close to 50%. We have a very hard time diagnosing them. What's the intervention? Um, the intervention is giving fluids and a broad-spectrum antibiotic. This is um, our institution from 2010 through 2012, and our mortality, depending on where the patients come from. So if they came in through the ED, 28%. If they were inpatients going to the ICU, this is like ICU home, 39%. If the ICU transfers, 46%. And these are other hospitals that are part of this high-value healthcare collaborative. So these are places like Denver or Intermountain Healthcare, uh, North Shore, Long Island Jewish, and Baylor and places like that. Uh, this is IHC. And so over the span of seven years, Intermountain Healthcare, um, has decreased the mortality of patients coming in through the ED from 21% to 8.7%, and for the ICU from 20% to 12%. And it took them a lot of work over seven years. And what they did is there's something called the sepsis bundle, and it only consists really of four things and only two of those really have impact on outcome down the road. And those four things are send a lactate to identify them, send a blood culture, find out what bug is it, it is, give a broad spectrum antibiotic, and give a lot of fluid. Four things. Four things. Their compliance with that was 5%, which was several fold better than our compliance in the ED at the time. Uh, when we started this. And just by going up to over 70%, which is really phenomenally good, this happened. Seven years to do that. And so we knew we weren't doing great either here or there. And we needed to come up with a way on how we do better. That was uh, Miriam's task. So we get together with a pretty big group of people, and the group is ever enlarging, and all you are going to be part of it. OK? 
Okay, so sepsis is one of the strategic initiatives for this year and will be for next year as well. And so uh, with the help of Sim Shields and his team from the Value Institute, he's one of the black belts, we created like a modular approach initially for the ED and then for the ICU with some joint sessions on improving the delivery of care to patients coming through the ED and the ICU while measuring what we're doing, okay? So I talked about the difficulty uh, identifying patients, and this is where this may come, or this, not may, this will come to you in one way or another, and, and we are just working on uh, rolling this out to all the general care units. So I, I, we talked about on how difficult it is to actually identify patients with sepsis. And there's some usual criteria that are being used. But they are so, and I'm talking now again about the problem of alarm burden and alarm fatigue that exists for identifying something like that as well. So there are, there are criteria that are being used, but if you use them on patients who are in the hospital, everybody would be positive. Or on patients who come in through VD, almost everybody would be positive. So we actually took an example of what they did at North for LIJ to just make these criteria much tighter so that the triage nurses could identify patients who are very likely to have sepsis right away. And so those were just a high temperature over 38.3, that's hard to read, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, respiratory rate greater than 24, pulse greater than 120, or unexplained mental status changes. And then basically have the triage nurse um, initiate the cascade of the three-hour bundle. Okay? And in one form or another, this is something that we would like to do um, in the general care units as well. This will go along with an educational effort, so the Office of Professional Development is, is involved with creating content for that, so that all of you learn about sepsis and know what criteria can be used. There's likely going to be a limited auto set that can be triggered by every single nurse on the floor that goes like, get a lactate, get a blood culture, give a little bit of fluid, and call the ICU team or the HERT team. How exactly we're going to do that, we are working on. But this is just something that will help us and help you to identify those patients. Because just like with respiratory depression or the pulse oximetry network, you are really the guys who are with the patients. You know, we cannot rely on the first-year orthopedic resident on the weekend who's holding retractors in the OR for the fifth hip of the day to also monitor the patients. They just can't do it. They're not as good at it as you are either. This is one of the sepsis inclusion in bundle checklists that's being used in the ED, where you just have the criteria on is this likely to be sepsis, and then it just says go and measure lactate, get the blood culture, you know, do the antibiotics, do the crystalloids, and, and track the time. We're tracking these process measures, as we call them, along the way, so we know how we're doing. And we do have some um, early results on this. And I told you how essential it is to get the antibiotics into these patients. Um, these are consecutive 33 patients from October 2013 before our efforts uh, until June of 2014. And the average time here up here was uh, seven hours or so. And right down here, it's all below three hours. Right? 
and that's the uh, great effort that the ED has done. And um, so how is this linked? Well, I told you time to antibiotics is really, really important. So here you see that time come down. You see the length of stay at the same time in the ICU drop down and the overall length of stay and stay in the ICU drop down. And look what happens to mortality. This is 50% hovering around here. This is when our effort kicked in. And we had a 0% mortality in May of 2014 with five patients come through. 50% mortality. We would have lost over two patients without these efforts, without getting these antibiotics into people. There's no other intervention that I know of that we give to only five patients, and it saves us two lives or two and a half lives. By giving fluids and an antibiotic, we really ought to be able to pull that off somehow. And, and the ED, to their great credit, did. And the ICU, uh, I have some early numbers that I will share really soon with Miriam and her team, is, is just following the same footsteps. So what we have to do is go from here and do this for the whole hospital. And I promise, A, we will support you in any way we can to get this done without driving you nuts. And we'll measure what we have done, and we'll do a much better job at coming back to you and show you on how you have done, right? Because it's truly your effort. This is kind of an interesting slide, and I'm not sure if Miriam has seen this one, but time to antibiotics, same number of patients. Our hospital charges for their stay went from 110,000 per episode to 50,000 per episode. Imagine what this is for cost savings. We're saving $50,000 per episode. Right? You do this for 10 patients, you get another orthopedic surgeon. Just kidding. <laughs> This is really phenomenal work, and, and there are very few medical problems where you have such a clear-cut correlation between this, survival, and cost. And I think this was my last slide, and if you have any questions, hook them up. This is an endless loop. I'm from Germany. This is Mario Götze or Super Mario. Scoring the winning goal at the World Cup final a few weeks ago. I'm still on a plateau high. Uh, so this will play until somebody asks me questions. Cut it off. All right, thanks very much for your attention. I think that falls into the category of not providing good feedback. We are tracking it, and we know what the numbers are, and there has been some way of communicating that. There's been some communicating that has come out of the RCAs, but I don't think it's as robust and as good as it should be. And I think that's where this group around Sumagraph that works around monitoring um, is going to come in to, to work with them. And 
a lot of it is really, quite frankly, motivation and education that's just not there um, as it should be. And kids are at lower risk because they're mm -hmm. not that's a lot of it's the other piece is that patient to refuse. That's been a big piece in medicine. And I think part of it is you have to give the nurses the scripts to be able to respond and educate the patients and families. Yeah, so I think that the nurses on the medical floors themselves are not convinced that this is a helpful thing. And so they see this as a burden for them. And if they are not convinced themselves, it's going to be very hard to get it on the patients. Whereas, you know, you talk to Nancy or, you know, Mike, who is not there anymore, who had, you know, had some knees done himself, who goes like, you need to be on this. We saved five people just the last two weeks. Mike retired? He's at the OC now. So it's, it's a totally different drive and, and motivation. I think it comes back to that. You know, the, the patient's compliance is to some degree on what we make it, and we just have to make it better on, on, you know, we we have to convince the nurses first on the medical floors on, on how important this is and what it has done. Actually, if you look at the hemonc patients, for example, you know, they are sick as or sick as any of our surgical patients. And I do know that we, that when we introduced that had quite some success in terms of reduction of events on the on the hemong floors where it was utilization also I think has been higher than on, on some other areas. But we really need to um, do a better job of, of going back and letting them know what it is and feeding back utilization data and, and celebrate, you know, rescues and successes and do all that. It's not as I said, you know, whenever you think you've communicated enough, it's not even a third of what you should have done. And, and we as an institution, and that's myself included, just haven't done a good job with it, quite frankly. I'm not blaming it on those people who work on the medical floors. It's not them, really. But I think we also need some other champions. You know, and Nancy was clearly a strong champion for us, and so I think we've talked about sort of who, is, who are those next champions that yeah. are going to take and own it in some of the areas. So. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, the we've had on... Again, I'm more familiar with the surgical units, which is just already a bad sign right there, but um, there were individual nurses who just drove things. And, and you know, at some point, it's just what you do. And in, in on three west and four west, it's just entrenched culture by now. They just, that's what you do. It's like, you know, say hi, what's the insurance? Here's your name band, here's your pulse oximeter. How successful were you in keeping them on for delirious so delirious patients are obviously a difficult group to deal with because they are all over the place. They get out of bed and so on. We And there's a cable, which makes it more problematic. But we may be close to picking one of the units and ask us to help us with a completely wireless setup. Okay? So th there are some certain rules that exist. We, we kind of said when you have a patient who's really totally confused where the cable actually may be a threat to the patient, it's okay to take it off. Realizing that mental status change is one of the greatest predictors we have for bad outcomes, but we don't really have a great way around it until we go wireless, I think that would be a big step for that crowd. Having said that, kids are not all that easy either, and the pediatric floor is doing superb 
with having almost everybody on the monitor while they're in their beds. Yep. Complaints by patients is one thing. How about complaints by nurses just carrying the pager with them? Mm -hmm. The person could be hooked up, but the pager's not on that nurse's body. That's true, and and we have really no idea on how often that happens. We we do know that um, it is almost never happened that we had a patient who was in the system, which we can track, who had an adverse event that, by review, we thought could have been could have been prevented. We do get alarm statistics. And we do know if an alarm was not attended to. The system provides that automatically. And so I cannot remember that we have had an incident of such sort and that this is a very frequent problem. But it may be, and I just don't know about it. But, but you're speaking to a problem of carrying a pager. You know, for many of our younger people, carrying a pager is like, what is this thing? Why can't I get this on my smartphone uh, you know, that I'm carrying already? And, and I think that's just evolvement of technology. When we started on 3West, we actually had to teach the um, nurses on how to use a pager, because it's not really an intuitive device like a smartphone is. But hopefully that will get better with technology. And you know, again, I think it comes down to you know the leadership of you know, champions on the floor. It doesn't need to be the unit leader. It could be just somebody who says, you know, we've had some good rescues with this, and, you know, you really ought to be carrying this pager with you because it saves lives. And I, I think that at some point, if we just do it often enough and enough patients have it on, there's such a group dynamic that leads to this is just what you do. All right. 